Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration between my company and Fastcase and Law Street Media. Today, we're going to talk about yet another aspect of litigation that will arise or has arisen <laughs> and continues from the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic. And I'll learn to say it, the COVID pandemic you know, because anytime anything huge happens and people get hurt or sick or, God forbid, die, in a civilized society, we like to sort things out in court. As they say, it's the worst system, except for all the others. We talked about the business interruption and insurance aspects on a previous, on a previous podcast, um, the relief fraud aspects, uh, people taking advantage of the uh, pay check protection program as well as the impact in the employment law realm, and there will be others. Today, we turn to healthcare, and here I'm going to quote from an introduction of an article that will appear in the next issue of the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation that we produce with Fastcase. Global, national, and local public health organizations and authorities, those are called authorities, scrambled to issue recommendations and advice based on the available science and knowledge at the time. And as soon as we incorporated the latest guidance into our daily routines, the article continues, it would become obsolete as scientists gained a deeper understanding of how the coronavirus spread and the risks it posed to various subsets of the population. The author reminds us that, uh, asks us to remember, rather, remember when we were supposed to quarantine our mail and Amazon packages for three days, and to wipe down our groceries. I don't remember that, so it's lucky I, I survived. As the pandemic raged on, the article continues, these organizations and authorities emphasized an unprecedented need for healthcare providers and facilities to make difficult decisions, such as care prioritization, staffing changes, and purposeful, purposeful allocation of personal protective equipment and diagnostic tests. Doctors, nurses, and other healthcare providers had to wear the same N95 protection face mask for numerous patient visits across multiple shifts, which was would have been unheard of before the pandemic. And again, that's not me talking. It's me talking, but it's not me writing. It's the writing of someone, lucky for you, who is infinitely more qualified than I am. Sandra Chanfloni is an attorney in the Atlanta office of Hall Booth Smith. Whatever happened to And? Whatever happened to the Ampersand? They don't need my comment on their name. Hall Booth Smith in Atlanta. Her practice primarily focuses on medical malpractice. Before joining Hall Booth Smith, Sandy, I'm going to call her Sandy, practiced in New York at one of the oldest medical defense and health care firms in the state. She defends hospitals, physicians, nurses, and institutional employees in a broad spectrum of catastrophic injury cases. She had a baby during COVID, by the way. So what, uh, what kind of terror does that strike into the heart of any healthcare provider <laughs> when you are working, working with? Yeah, that's a way, one way of putting it. Your patient actually knows the laws of everything you're doing. Uh, fortunately, she defends them. She's also represented and defended healthcare institutions, as I said, private practices, physicians, psychologists, nurses, physician assistants, and medical practice staff members in complex med mal actions. Sandy received her JD from Pace University's School of Law, Go Setters, and her undergraduate degree from Farley Dickinson University, Go Knights. Please note, 
uh, along the way, uh, Sandy uh, quickly and politely corrected my outrageous claim about the number of Americans that have been vaccinated. It would have taken me no time to research it, but I didn't do it. It's more around 40% as of this writing. Not the insane number I spouted off uh, irresponsibly. Also, apologies to our Spanish-speaking listeners. I mangled the Spanish phrase for I'm hungry. As we all know, it's tengo hambre, which I think I said. Well, actually, then I, in, I think I said it, and then I incorrected myself, if that's a phrase. That's an English phrase. Yeah. And uh, I think I said ten, ten hambre, which means he's hungry, and, and he probably is. So apologies to Senior Yoder, my high school Spanish teacher. Let's just jump right in with my first question and introduction to Sandy Chanfloni with Hall Booth Smith. So Sandy Chanfloni, thank you for doing this today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Great. So I thought we'd just jump right into it. Um, in the article you've written, you say that there are estimates that are more than 15,000 lawsuits have been filed related to, to COVID-19 and uh, 350 of those have been directed toward health and the medical communities. And you break these down, you say, uh, the majority of the claims you're seeing are against uh, aging services. What can you tell us about that? Right. So in the aging services uh, sector, we're seeing a lot of claims with respect to uh, infection control policies. And these claims are coming up more around a specific time frame. So you're looking at probably of March 2020 of last year through about May, June 2020 of last year, um, 2020 of last year, obviously. Um <laughs> And you're looking at these these types of claims in the context of of you know whether or not the facility had appropriate PPE uh, uh, stockpiles, whether or not they uh, had the proper protocols in place for social distancing, whether they were doing temperature checks, restricting visitors. Um, so you're seeing a lot of that, um, a lot of claims in that context. Sometimes you'll see uh, a few of the traditional nursing home long-term care claims, but when you're looking at the COVID cases in general, you're going to see um, these infection control um, acts or omissions being alleged in those in those claims. So okay, and then jumping over then to claims related to treatment, you said that's a the next largest subset against hospitals, healthcare providers. Right. So this is when people have already um, contracted COVID or, you know, didn't realize they had COVID and they ended up testing positive when they arrived at the um, whatever the facility, the clinic, the emergency room. Um, and then, you know, something happens in the through the course of their treatment, whether it's an adverse reaction to something like hydroxychloroquine. I know that that was, you know, we all know that that was um, something that was being tested earlier on, um, you know, complications with respect to um, intubations for those respiratory patients or complications with ventilator settings and and things like that. So those are the second subset of claims that we're seeing right now um, come up. And those are actually more recent. The aging services claims are are sort of the ones that happened earlier on in the pandemic. Okay. And now that, uh, what did I see? What either sixty or seventy percent of Americans have had at least one one shot. I think that's something like that. Uh, I'm allowed to be wrong. Uh, I'll go back and check that just in case. I but, think that's uh, a little high, but yeah, but yes. 
and maybe I am, who knows? I've had my <laughs> vaccine and I still am feeling the effects, I swear. You're anticipating the next wave uh, is going to be around uh, vaccine litigation and you expect there to be a, a wide variety of claims by plaintiff attorneys. And uh, what, what kind of things are you seeing there? So I think in terms of vaccine litigation, we're going to see uh, claims with people uh, alleging that they had adverse reactions from the vaccine itself. Um, a lot of the the news stories you're seeing right now are sort of the primer of these claims. Um, people sustaining blood clots or um, some type of serious yet rare complications of these vaccines. And I think that's going to be the next wave of litigation that you might see with respect to um, with respect to vaccines. Uh, I, I don't see it being a, a huge population of claims, but it's definitely going to be something that's going to be on the radar because these um, vaccines are, a lot of them are mRNA uh, vaccines, and I won't get into that, but um, the mRNA vaccines, because of the way they are structured, they do have a tendency to um, to interfere with different people's biochemistry differently. And so, um, to the extent that you'll see those claims, it's going to be more of a, a causation uh, litigation setting that you're going to see them in. Okay. Well, then, to kind of to uh, to your to your practice, focusing on what what you do, um, what kind of defenses are you seeing uh, out there? You mentioned that there are some um, uh, there are several defenses, and one would be under the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. That rolls right off the tongue. The Prep Act. Yes, we'll call it. the Prep Act. Um, a lot of a, a lot of uh, good uh, litigation going on with respect to asserting this defense. Um, we're we. It is not a defense that we have a lot of case law on at this point. Um, but I think just to back up a little bit and gain some understanding of what the PREP Act is. Um, this is not something that kind of came out of the blue last year. This is actually something that was uh, enacted by Congress back in 2005, which um, allowed the secretary of HHS to issue these declarations to provide targeted liability immunity to healthcare providers and those um, who would be on the front lines of um, pandemics such as such as COVID-19. We've actually seen this uh, being it being rolled out previously um, by HHS in prior administrations um, in the context of H1N1, avian flu, Ebola. Um, those were primarily tailored to the vaccines because the vaccines were readily available. So the prior PrEP Act application was um, very limited to the vaccines um, and the liability immunities around those. Uh, with respect to COVID-19, there were several uh, several HHS declarations, which is the enacting, um, which is the the way this targeted liability immunity gets rolled out from the PrEP Act. The PrEP Act actually doesn't provide anything unless the HHS provides a declaration issuing uh, liability immunity. So um, last year, there was four uh, PrEP Act declarations which provided targeted liability immunity for specific covered countermeasures. And each each declaration had provided a little bit different a little bit more information with respect to what 
the PREP Act would apply to. So, for example, one of the declarations uh, covers uh, hospitals and, and healthcare providers and long-term care facilities uh, when they are administering and using uh, PPE uh, face masks and N95 face masks. Um, you know, any kind of therapeutic at the time for people who were testing positive and were provided with, say, hydroxychloroquine at the time um, and those types of things. So the defense for the PREP Act, it kind of revolves around sort of the administration and use of a product. Uh, So again, you're looking at vaccines, you're looking at PPE, you're looking at face masks or any kind of device that would help prevent or mitigate the spread of COVID-19. So that's one defense that we've seen a lot of. Um, The next section of, I call them sections because I kind of analyze them in my head separately, but the Mm -hmm. next section of defenses that we look at from there is generally whether or not the state that we're in has provided any executive order or legislative you know, legislative order providing immunity to that would apply in the context of whatever the claim is. So each state is going to have something different. Um, generally, they'll they'll issue these these orders with respect to a specific time frame. So sometimes you'll and and a good example is New York. Um, New York had issued an executive order um, through a specific time frame and and curtailed it lasting throughout the entire pandemic, because obviously that's still not over, but they had targeted the liability immunity provisions to specific uh, months last year during the peak of their, their COVID, uh, their COVID spread. And there, and most of these liability immunity provisions have to do with rendering care and treatment to COVID patients. There are a few that, that um, deal with trying to prevent the spread uh, of COVID-19 or following guidance from the CDC or local public health officials. Uh, There's a lot of different nuances to them, but we kind Mm -hmm. of, we, we sort of separate out our analysis when we're, when we're looking at these cases, there's PREP Act, which is, which is federally based. And then you have all of the state immunities that are available right now, where I believe we're at 39 states with immunities, with immunity provisions. Um, Plus there's one in the district of Columbia as well. So that's sort of what we're looking at right now. Uh, In the article you describe, you have a section on, um, on covered persons under the, under the PREP Act. Who are those folks? So covered persons has been defined in the PREP Act as manufacturers, distributors, program planners, qualified persons, their officials, employees and agents and so on and so forth. So it's kind of a broad group of people. Uh, The context we've seen this defense raised in recently um, is in the context of program planners and qualified persons. So program planners would generally be those who are uh, administering or coming up with these infection prevention protocols. So in any any uh, facility that's coming up with these uh, policies to administer throughout the facility to prevent the spread of COVID-19, those would be program planners. Um, also, vaccine administration programs, those would be um, program planners. Qualified person is uh, generally the individual. So you're going to see them pop up in the context of doctors and uh, nurses and anybody who is on the front lines actually administering um, the covered countermeasure at issue. I'm glad you clarified program planners. Those aren't, those are not conference planners. No, they're not. (laughs) 
as, as if we didn't have enough problems. I know. And then uh, covered countermeasures. Yes. So covered countermeasures is actually where the bulk of the litigation is is being had at this point in time. Um, the declaration set forth what covered countermeasures are actually covered under the PREP Act immunity. And in that context, again, we are seeing that in the in P, with PPE, um, face masks, vaccines, um, anything at the time that would have prevented or mitigated the spread of COVID-19. Also, I, I think I forgot to mention diagnostic tests. These covered countermeasures are usually FDA approved or have been given an emergency use authorization by the FDA. So um, they are, it's a very broad category, but um, that's the crux of PREP Act. So everything with respect to the PREP Act has to tie back into these products um, in some sense. And then the next section you had is on recommended activities. What are those? So recommended activities is about, and and again, I'm going to try to make it a little bit more narrow since it's a, it's a very broad term. Mm -hmm. um, we see this in the context of administration of covered countermeasures or use of covered countermeasures. So anytime somebody is um, administering a vaccine or is using uh, a face mask or um, is using an ET tube for intubation, um, those are the 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 actions around the covered countermeasures. So if you are a covered person and you are administering or using a covered countermeasure and that covered countermeasure it, during the administration of use had caused an injury or some type of loss, then you're probably covered under the PREP Act. What is this, this part that I'm reading that the declaration goes as far as to state that liability claims such as slip and fall injuries or Vehicle collisions by a recipient receiving a countermeasure at a retail store serving as an administration or dispensing location are precluded. Yes. So this is this gives you some context into the broad nature of the PREP Act and what was actually intended by Congress when they were empowering HHS and uh, given this given their power to declare this these PREP Act emergencies and um, what would be covered. So it's not just limited to the treatment itself. Um, for the PREP Act to apply, it has to be in the context of, and I think in, in the article I mention it, is when somebody's coming to get their vaccine and they trip and fall at the facility that they're supposed to be getting this vaccine. Because they're there to get the vaccine, that's the cover countermeasure, right? So this the the program itself is is the the crux of what gives them prep immunity. So whether or not it's a trip and fall or if it's if an injury from the vaccine itself, you're looking at prep immunity. Yeah. So when um, with any kind of claims like in, in negligence and in litigation or whatever, there has to be some nexus to to the covered countermeasure, you say. What could you what can you say about that? Right. So in order for PREP Act apply, the covered countermeasure. So any act or omission has to be premised upon this idea of a use or administration of a covered countermeasure. 
So it can't just be that, hey, I I'm, you know, I am a doctor and I work in a facility that uses PPE, so therefore I am covered. Um, it doesn't necessarily work that way. It has to, the injury has to be stemming from um, you know, the use of this covered countermeasure or, or the administration of. So in the context of aging services, we're seeing this pop up in um, cases where people are, are contracting COVID despite the fact that there are these infection control protocols in place. And um, in that context, they're using PPE because that's at the time that is basically the only thing that they had available to them to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, so th- there's always a causal nexus between the administration and use of that covered countermeasure. So the, the use of uh, a face mask or something like this in connection with the plaintiff's claimed injury, which would be con- contracting COVID-19. Okay. okay. All right. And, and then you discuss a bit the, uh, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. So the PREP Act is not completely absolute. So if if somebody acted with uh, in in the context of willful misconduct, and that's that's the term that is throughout uh, the PREP Act provision, if if there's willful misconduct that's claimed, PREP Act will not apply to those those allegations. And in that regard, the the plaintiff would first have to go and apply to the compensation fund. Um, the CICP is what we've been calling it. And um, they would apply to that fund if they've sustained some bodily injury, serious bodily injury or death. And um, the that would be reviewed by um, a, an administrative board, and then they re- would receive or they're offered benefits through that fund. They can choose to accept those benefits or they can choose to deny those benefits, but then their only recourse um, for their willful misconduct claim would be to bring suit in the uh, District of Columbia in federal court. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Street Media, a free legal news service from FastCase that provides daily updates on technology, health, and agriculture news. They also provide Law Street Insights articles, which use groundbreaking legal analytics to provide a new data-driven perspective on the legal system. With Law Street Media, you can get more out of your legal news with detailed analysis provided by leading research tools like Docket Alarm. You can also get free filings, easy access to case law and statutes mentioned in the articles. You can subscribe to receive free daily digests that cover the most important topics in tech, health, and agriculture by visiting lawstreetmedia.com today. And now let's get back to our interview with Sandy. I'm going to call her Sandy again. Sandy Chanfloney with Hall Booth Smith. And then uh, and we talked a little bit of already about the state base. You said you think there are about 39 states that have um, immunity and defenses available, but you, you comment on, you anticipate that some plaintiffs will try to get around these immunities and how, how would they do that? And, you know, some of them are going to try to come around, uh, get around these immunities by picking sort of the weakest portion <laughs> of, of the, uh, the immunity provision. So um, a good example would be uh, this idea of uh, whether or not the, the defendant had strictly complied with federal guidance or substantially complied with federal or state guidance in the um, in order to prevent the injury that they're alleging. So again, these are you're going to see this more in the context of contraction uh, 
we call them contraction claims, but contracting COVID-19. Um, the other way you'll probably see this um, is whether or not this the person is actually covered under the immunity provision. So it's most provisions are are generally directed towards healthcare providers. Um, I know there are some that are uh, geared towards the business side of things and people, you know, going into shops and restaurants and contracting COVID-19, but it will be uh, definitely narrowly pled. So they're going to try to plead around that as much as they can. What are you telling healthcare providers and risk managers uh, now? What can they do now in anticipation of some of this litigation that we might see or will see? Are seeing. Let me conjugate my verb. <laughs> what I feel like I'm tell? in Spanish class. <laughs> <laughs> Yo tengo hambre. No, I don't know what I, I have hung, you know, I ahead. have hungry now. Yeah. Okay. I, I am hungry. So. Yeah. Tene hambre, I think. It's tene hambre. I have hunger. I have hunger. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are the things, what, what kind of steps uh, are healthcare providers and risk managers, what kind of things can they uh, do now? The, the main thing that we have been um, counseling folks is to document everything. You, I, I know we say this in, in general litigation with, mm. with healthcare providers, and we understand that, you know, care comes first and the care should come first. Um, but to the extent that you can document your efforts to prevent the spread of COVID-19 or prevent um, any kind of injuries from any uh, any of the covered countermeasures or things like that, or even documenting the use of these covered countermeasures, you'll, you'll definitely save yourself the headache later on if everything is documented and organized. Um, the other thing with respect to documentation is also getting um, your policies and procedures in order just for just for 2020 alone, get those, you know, squared away and organized so that if a claim does come up, you're prepared um, to, to handle it and be able to show that you have made every possible effort to, um, you know, avoid the, the obviously uh, sympathetic issues that are arising in these claims. Yeah. It seems like collecting documents. I just interviewed an attorney about fair debt collection. So when called by a uh, debt collector, document everything. So if I really listen to all, all of you attorneys, I'm going to turn into a hoarder. I'm, I'm the person who loves to throw things away. But um, Yeah, I went all anyway. electronic during COVID. No more paper. See, yeah. that's, that's the solution, right? Yeah, that's I guess solution. so. Yeah, that's true. The only thing that you can't find is something you absolutely need. Otherwise, <laughs> this is true. If you're looking, if you're really looking for something, have someone sue you because they'll find it. They'll find it. Yes, this is absolutely true. (laughs) Or or just, or just ask my husband. He throws everything away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, we're either hoarders or we're just ruining the planet. So either one, we're just, we're doomed. Is there anything else you wanted to, to share about this? Yeah, so there there are a few other things uh, with respect to getting yourself prepared for uh, these types of claims is identifying witnesses early and making sure that you have all of their contact information um, if they're no longer employed, especially um, getting getting statements from them is is all right. I, I think it, I think the better the better route is to just make sure that you uh, identify them and keep a list of the people who are involved uh, that surround any potential claim. Um, The other thing we would suggest is getting in touch with somebody who is knowledgeable in these types of claims and getting specialty counsel on board really early on because the deadlines uh, with respect to prep immunity and asserting that are are from from the outset, from the time you are served with the with the 
litigation papers. And we usually recommend that you retain specialty counsel really early on so that your strategy is uniform going through the course of the litigation. Uh, Sandra Chenfloni, thank you very much for talking to me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really fun. And yes, it was fun. Uh, I hope you learned a lot from this. Uh, again, you've been listening to Sandra Chanfloni with Hallbooth Smith. And we've been talking, obviously, about a lot of the litigation that's going to be arising or is arising. There I go, conjugating again, uh, in, the, in the wake of and during uh, the COVID pandemic. Watch for Sandra's article, which will be coming out in a couple of months, in the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation. It's going to be another good issue. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe and give us a good rating. I didn't give you the option of giving us a bad rating. Give us a good rating. Give us a rating. Go in there and subscribe. We're building this audience. We're having fun doing it. And if you're interested in participating in the podcast, please write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. Once again, this podcast is a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation Conferences, and Fastcase and Law Street Media, and the fine services that those folks offer. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. So we could just talk about having a baby during during a pandemic. I think that's interesting. Yeah, well, that was definitely interesting. It was, it was August of last year, and so they were still doing the uh, nasal pharyngeal swabs. So the really oh, yeah. deep swab tests, yeah. boy, that is a feeling I will never forget for sure. The, just the swab, the swab. This is a woman who had a baby. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, having the baby, not so bad. Nasal pharyngeal swab. Horrible. Horrible. <laughs>